Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to be exploring the subject, the fascinating subject of time travel. My guest is Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, a philosopher and author of many books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. It's great to be with you again, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure, as always, to be with you, Jason. When we think of time travel, the first thing that comes to mind is all of the many science fiction stories and movies and episodes of Star Trek and other uh, Doctor Who, for example, that, that address this question. It's one that's fascinated people uh, ever since I can remember. Yeah, there are two works of science fiction that I, I find particularly fascinating um, that have to do with time travel because they approach time travel from the angle of uh, parapsychology um, rather than uh, in terms of a uh, mechanistic time machine. And uh, these are the, the novel by Jack Finney, uh, Time and Again, um, and uh, the film La Jetée by Chris Marker. And the, the really interesting thing about um, Jack Finney's novel Time and Again is that it was published in 1970, which is a few years before uh, the CIA started secretly developing the re remote viewing program at uh, the Stanford Research Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, you know, um, this is interesting because the program that's laid out uh, for time travel in this uh, sci-fi novel by Jack Finney is very much like what winds up uh, becoming the protocol in the remote viewing program. It's a U.S. government program that's depicted in this novel um, that uh, uses uh, clairvoyance and astral projection in order to uh, send people backwards into time. And uh, in particular, they have this interesting idea of um, uh, creating simulacra of places in the past and so they set this room up, the people working in this government program, set this room up uh, just as it would have been in the 1800s. And they even introduced certain smells that were distinctive of the period, like certain kind of tobacco smell and so forth. And they they uh, dress this uh, time traveler in uh, period-appropriate clothing and uh, use a certain uh, hypnotic suggestion protocol to um, actually they teach him a kind of auto hypnosis mm. uh, and he suggests himself into the past and walks out of that hotel room into the 1800s and then uh, we also see in uh, La Jetée uh, the film by Chris Marker uh, psychic phenomena used as a method of time travel this is a film about um, a group of survivors of the third world war who are living in galleries underneath the Palais de Chaillot in Paris, uh, where not incidentally the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was drafted by the United Nations uh, after the Second World War. And these um, 
these survivors are prisoners of war being held, it appears, by Germans. Uh, and the German captors are carrying out uh, various experiments on them to try to see if they can uh, send people into the past. Because um, it, it seems there, there are suggestions that space has been closed off to the survivors of this nuclear war, that either Earth is under a quarantine or space travel technology doesn't exist anymore. So the only way out of this incredibly bleak future is backwards into the past. And they, uh, they use a, a method of uh, sensory deprivation, extreme sensory deprivation together with hypnosis to get a um, prisoner of war to focus on a particular particularly vivid memory from his past, from his childhood, and astral project himself <clears throat> into that moment. And uh, the moment that he, that he um, finds himself in is a memory of having witnessed a man being shot to death as he's running toward a horrified woman on uh, the, the pier or uh, jetty, la jetée, of Orly Airport in Paris. Uh, and it turns out, to make a long story short, that he's witnessing his own death because later in the same film he goes uh he goes AWOL as it were he goes off off the reservation as they put it in the military and the time cops uh of this uh, future civilization come after him and they assassinate him on the pier of that airport after he has developed a romantic relationship with this woman who he he's fascinated by uh you know in in these various attempts that they make to send him into the past so these are two um works of uh, science fiction uh, literature and film that uh, approach time travel from the um, from the perspective of parapsychology. And I think it's fair to say they're both much more imaginative than what actually takes place, for example, in the remote viewing laboratory. Yes, although there are a few cases um, that, that I uh, am aware of from the history of remote viewing, which when you put them together suggests that uh, Joe McMonagall may have been justified in calling remote viewing the ultimate time machine. Mm -hmm. For example, um, <clears throat> there was a case where, there was an operation where, in order to uh, study um, uh, the uh, Pan Am Flight 103 bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland, uh, they sent someone onto the airplane. They, they had someone, you know, clairvoyantly view the airplane uh, at the moment in the past where this terrorist attack occurred. And, you know, there's a phenomenon in remote viewing where... Uh, instead of simply clairvoyantly describing a target, the viewer uh, gets completely immersed in the site. And they refer to this as bilocation, and it's discouraged because uh, the, the viewers who enter this kind of state, which in the old days they called astral projection, can't um, readily communicate information to the interviewer in, in the mm -hmm. remote viewing session. And the interviewer who's, who's tasked with uh, guiding them and, and helping to get Because the feeling is not that they're viewing. The feeling is that they're there. And in this case, it appears that somehow the remote viewer really was there because, uh, I mean, first of all, he found out that there was a secondary explosive on the airplane and it was hidden in, in chocolate bars brought onto the aircraft by an Iranian woman who was taking vengeance for a relative of hers having been killed in the United States Navy downing of uh, an Iran Air Civilian airliner some months earlier in the same year. Mm. Uh, and uh, But at the moment that the airplane started breaking apart after this secondary explosive was detonated, uh, he witnessed, the remote viewer witnessed, people standing up out of their bodies 
uh, their spectral body standing up inside the aircraft and turning around and looking toward him. Um, and they had these, these, uh, looks of despair and horror on their faces, uh, because, uh, and, and these really searching, questioning, uh, gazes directed at him because they could tell that he knew what was going on, what mm -hmm. was happening to them that they, they couldn't understand. Yeah. Uh, and so it suggests that somehow he was at least in the form of a ghost present on this aircraft, uh, in the aisle of this aircraft. Now, there's another case from the earliest days of the remote viewing program at SRI, uh, where Russell Targan and Harold Putoff sent a remote viewer into a particle accelerator in the physics department at Stanford. And the idea was to just describe what was going on inside the particle accelerator. But the remote viewer felt like the particles were traveling through him, and there was actually a massive malfunction of the particle accelerator that required significant maintenance. Um, unfortunately, the physics department never found out that it was Targan put off that, you know, were responsible for this until years later when they revealed this information. Uh, but this suggests that not only is bilocation possible, it's also possible to psychokinetically affect the environment in this state. And when you combine those two things, uh, travel to the past or potentially to the future using um, astral projection or extreme clairvoyance, bilocation, and psychokinesis, then effectively you wound up with a method of time travel and, and a method of time travel where it's possible to affect the past or the future. Mm -hmm. Now, I parenthetically might add, though, that that particular incident in the particle accelerator, the Stanford Linear Accelerator, uh, is, is sort of anecdotal. It's not the best proof of psychokinesis. It might have been in any single incident a, a coincidence. I suppose so. Yeah. Uh, it would be but, a, an extraordinary coincidence. But there's plenty of other evidence for psychokinesis. There is. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, hard to see any reason why if psychokinesis is possible in the present and remote viewing is possible both in the present and in the past and the future, yeah. uh, why it wouldn't be possible if you, if you have a total immersion experience in the past to psychokinetically affect the past. It's known as retrocognitive psychokinesis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are um, spontaneous time slips that people have uh, reported in, in the, the history of uh, psychical literature. Um, one particularly prominent case was uh, described by uh, a particularly prominent episode uh, was described by Whitley Strieber in, in his book Breakthrough, where he was walking on a Manhattan sidewalk and uh, all of a sudden started to get various sensory input, uh, not just visual, but smells and sounds. Um, uh, smells, uh, you know, and sounds that were from, from uh, like a different time frame. Mm -hmm. And so you started to hear this carriage creaking, uh, from behind one of his ears and smell pickles. And next thing he knows, he sees there's a pickle barrel on the sidewalk and a carriage narrowly misses him. Uh, and people who are walking on the sidewalk jump back startled as if he appeared from out of nowhere. And he sees that, he is on the same sidewalk, but apparently in the 1800s, um, with people uh, uh, disconcerted by his clothing and so forth. And this only took place for a few moments. Um, but uh, he, he had other episodes like that. And it, it really makes you wonder about 
um, all these cases of missing persons. You know, David Politas has studied uh, uh, many of the of the missing persons cases that are reported every year, and found that some of them are are utterly bizarre, like cases where you know hikers are forming a line up a mountain, and there's a fixed interval in between them, and uh, you know, one hiker goes around a bend, and then the the hiker behind him. Uh, when when he goes around the same bend, he sees that the the, the uh, person walking ahead of him is missing, and he the, this person just disappears from out of the line of hikers. Um, if there's snow in the environment, no footprints, no sound of of any uh, uh, altercation with an animal or the person being dragged off by anyone or abducted. So um, you know. You have to wonder, where are these people disappearing to? Are these instances of spontaneous slips in time? You're, you're suggesting that there might be naturally occurring, let's call them time portals, that occasionally people, uh, unbeknownst to themselves, just slip through and don't come back. Yeah, there have been some serious studies of the Bermuda Triangle phenomenon, for instance, uh, where um, uh, there, there are cases of some of the aircraft and naval vessels that have gone missing into the Bermuda Triangle being seen in that area again decades later. Uh, and there are a whole, uh, um, there's a whole mass of evidence of uh, archaeological artifacts that are misplaced in time, that are, that are anomalous, mm -hmm. temporally anomalous. Um, for example, uh, uh, gold chain, a, a, a uh, you know, um, hand-worked gold chain inside a slab of stone, or uh, an iron cup in a, in a huge lump of coal, uh, or um, a uh, zinc alloy vase with a uh, floral pattern on it, discovered in uh, mines in Idaho and Nebraska and Oklahoma at depths that would suggest these objects are anywhere from 200 to 600 million years old. Yeah. There was a, in, 19, in 1922, there was a, a shoe print discovered in, uh, in um, shale that was hundreds of millions of years old where the, uh, the shoe was stepping on trilobites. Um, so, and you know, some of these very early reports that I, that I was describing of uh, objects found in large lumps of coal and, and uh, gold chains and rock and so forth were reported in magazines like Scientific American or in newspapers of the caliber of the London Times in the 1840s, 1850s, uh, before, you know, the, the paleontological uh, and anthropological orthodoxy had really taken hold. Yeah. Well, I've done a couple of interviews with Michael Cremo, the co-author with Richard Thompson of the book Forbidden Archaeology. They tend to assume uh, that this evidence points to uh, their hypothesis that the human race is much older than uh, normal uh, Darwinian theory would uh, be able to account for. You're suggesting it might be uh, evidence of some form of time travel. Exactly. I think it's more reasonable to us. And, and it's also less uh, bleak and pessimistic to assume that these artifacts are evidence for time travel, even if it's accidental time travel. People who slipped 
through portals in space or weaknesses in the fabric of space-time than it is to suggest this is evidence for vastly ancient human civilization. Mm -hmm. Because if we reach the, I mean, one of these uh, finds was uh, deep inside a, a, a mine, they found, uh, you know, at a strat of hundreds of millions of years old, they found a 26-foot-long polished concrete wall. Uh, if this is evidence that we have that level of civilization hundreds of millions of years ago, and it's fallen uh, perhaps many times, and we've been reduced to barbarism and to savagery and had to build ourselves back up again over and over, uh, over the course of hundreds of millions of years, that's an extremely bleak and pessimistic view of human history, if you ask me. It's very consonant with Cremo and Thompson's worldview because they're both, uh, they're both part of the, um, what do they call it? International Society of Krishna Consciousness. Yeah, the Hare the Krishna, Hare Krishna movement. Yeah. And, uh -huh. and so they subscribe to the cyclical Hindu view of history, uh, which, which I've always seen as a terribly pessimistic and bleak view. Um, uh, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't encourage uh, progressive development into the future. Uh, at any rate, um, I think rather than calling into question the Darwinian theory of evolution, uh, this kind of evidence would best be interpreted as a corroboration of um, uh, time travel. At least of objects. Yeah, well, they're objects left behind by people. Or that well, they might have been sort of apports. Apports they, they could have been apported. Well, I, I mean, when you so. find an object like that embedded in a in a piece of coal or in stone somewhere, yes, but the shoe prints are clearly, I mean, made by people. Uh, you know, a shoe is not going to teleport itself and step on trilobites. So, and and one of these shoe prints actually has a worn sole, mm -hmm. uh, where where you know the right where the heel is inside the shoe, the sole appears to mm -hmm. have been worn through, and it, and it's in a strata of rock that's uh, contemporary with the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, these simple-minded creationists use these things to argue that the world is only 5,000 years old and the dinosaurs, you know, were contemporaneous with, with uh, a man that, that's of only biblical antiquity. But I think it's more reasonable to see this as evidence for time travel. And the significance of that is that even if these slips in time occurred accidentally, uh, it suggests that on an ontological level, time travel is possible. Mm. Well, uh, obviously, it raises many questions for a philosopher such as yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, the standard, you know, question that's that's posed here is is the the grandfather paradox that you know. Uh, if if someone were to be able to travel back into the past and to alter it, uh, it, it's conceivable that they would set in motion a chain of events that would prevent them from even having been born, um, and so. Uh, logicians and analytic philosophers have raised objections to the idea that it's possible to change the past. They think that, you know, if time travel occurs, um, the only things that can happen in the past have to be things that are consistent with history as it's recorded now. So there can be time loops, but not changes to the timeline. Uh, and I gather this is a problem that uh, people such as uh, even Aristotle puzzled over. Yeah, Aristotle argued, uh, and, and then Thomas Aquinas, his medieval um, uh, scholastic disciple, argued that even God uh, or the highest intelligence uh, could not change the past, that God would be, as it were, violating his own laws to change the past. And uh, from Aquinas's perspective, that this would be an affront to the omnipotence and omniscience of God, because, you know, presumably God could get it right the first time. But then there were people like St. Damien who heretically argued that uh, God um, can revise and perfect the past. Uh, which I, I would say is actually much more consistent 
with a Gnostic worldview than with any form of Catholicism, though he was a Catholic saint, I think that that view presumes that God is not omniscient and omnipotent, and, you know, that, that uh, the divine needs to carry out remedial action suggests a kind of imperfect um, divinity uh, that's consistent with the Gnostic demiurge um, more than it is with uh, Catholic theology. Well, it suggests to me that perhaps from the perspective of God, past, present, and future are very different than uh, how they appear to humans. Yeah, um, that's possible. Uh, one person who did take this Gnostic perspective and who seriously considered uh, time travel was Philip K. Dick, um, who, uh, you know, he confessed ultimately that the world he depicts in the man in the high castle where the, the, uh, Axis powers have, have won the second world war, uh, is base, was based on fragmentary memories of an alternate timeline that he had. And, and, uh, he thought that, uh, there was a, a Gnostic savior of sorts, a Valis, a vast active living intelligence system that was trying to beneficently rewrite history and, and, uh, counter, countermand the, um, uh, programming of, of these archons that were trying to control humanity. Uh, the, the thing about, uh, Dick and the man in the high castle that's interesting is, um, that it was developed into a, a, uh, television series mm -hmm. relatively recently where there's a portal in time that's been created in rural Pennsylvania where uh, the Nazis who have won the Second World War have discovered our world, our timeline, and are trying to cross through this portal into our world to secure a victory here as well. Uh, and I find that interesting because um, there is some uh, disturbing evidence that it, toward the end of the Second World War, 1943-44, the Germans were working on a, uh, a a technology that could warp the fabric of space-time. Mm. And I have to wonder whether the people who wrote this show, based on Philip K. Dick's novel, uh, are, are alluding to this. Uh, otherwise, it might be an interesting synchronicity. It might be. Yeah. Didn't uh, the great logician Kurt Gödel also weigh in on the question of whether it's possible to change the past? He did. And, uh, you know, uh, talk about an analytically minded person. He did think that it was possible to change the past, um, uh, despite all these objections from analytic philosophers. Uh, he did think it's possible to change the past. And, you know, uh, w one thing, though, that I think uh, often isn't considered is that if it were possible to do so, it would make a time machine the ultimate weapon. Uh, because, you know, if you're engaged in a, a, a battle with an enemy, uh, that, uh, is intractable. The best way to defeat them is to go back into the past and prevent them from ever existing. And this kind of, uh, science fictional scenario is what you see in Fritz Lieber's novel, The Big Time. He, uh, he calls it the change war. And there are these two factions, the, the spiders and the serpents, uh, that both have time travel technology. And they are waging a war, uh, against each other, um, in order to ultimately prevent, each from, with, with each side aiming to ultimately prevent their enemy from ever having come in, come into existence. And, uh, 
it's peculiar that uh, that uh, well, it's not. I think he did it deliberately. Uh, Lieber basically suggests that the spiders are are time traveling Nazis, um, and indeed the uh, post war. Uh, uh, international cabal of, of SS officers that, you know, evacuated a lot of personnel and material to Argentina and were involved in negotiating the paperclip extraction of, of Nazi scientists in the United States were referred to as the spider. So I think that he's getting this, uh, from, uh, from that. Um, but I think Lieber might also have been aware of this uh, project that I referenced earlier. It's called the Nazi bell, as I recall. Yes, well, the, it was called the bell because it was a bell-shaped device, but the project was uh, was named Kronos, Project Kronos, which, which is an obvious reference to the Lord of Time in, in classical Greek mythology. And this was a uh, research and development project outside of Prague in Czechoslovakia, Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia, run by uh, Hans Kammler. And uh, this device, it was a, a bell-shaped uh, device about 9 to 12 feet uh, tall, um, and it had two counter-rotating drums inside of it filled with a mercury-thorium isotope uh, with a constant supply of uh, alternating current electricity and intermittent shocks of direct current electricity. And the idea is that just the way that certain... Uh, isotopes of uranium and plutonium um, can yield a nuclear uh, fission or fusion reaction. This particular isotope of, of mercury-thorium, uh, when subjected to certain uh, electromagnetic uh, stresses, would open up a, a, a vortex, would, would create a, a supermassive uh, um, a vortex. And this would distort the space-time continuum around the object. And, and this is something that's been postulated by scholars who have looked into this history. Yeah, Nick Cook, a British uh, aerospace uh, uh, journalist, has looked into this and in the hunt for zero point, um, uh, with the idea being that this was an early zero-point energy device. Uh, and Joseph Farrell has done extensive research on this and on the, the um, political organization uh, that uh, survived the end of the Second World War and, and continued this trajectory of technological development in Argentina and potentially elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, this is relevant to time travel because the, the experiments uh, that, that they carried out on the bell um, included experiments where uh, plants and other organic uh, material was placed around the bell. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the machine was turned off, they saw that these, uh, these plants and, and other organisms experienced rapid cellular degeneration. They sort of just collapsed from within, uh, decayed rapidly. And, um, there's a suggestion that this is due to some kind of a disruption on a molecular level to the space-time continuum for, for these organisms. Because the humans who, who I mean, the, the first generation of scientists who were involved in the project also experienced a, a significant distortion in their sense of the flow of time. It, it seemed as if time was uh, flowing at a different rate for them inside the uh, laboratory than for people outside. And in fact, uh, uh, a, a number of these first generation of scientists on the project had various types of organ failure and died. And so later they took more uh, rigorous precautions to protect people from the effects 
of the Bell people, meaning the scientists. And then they also brought, un unfortunately, concentration camp, uh, you know, inmates, uh, within the Bell enclosure and, and studied the effects of this on the human organism more, uh, directly. Um, but, you know, this is, uh, is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting episode in, in, uh, in relation to time travel. Uh, when you consider the Kecksburg UFO uh, event in, in 1965, in December of 1965, where this acorn-shaped object was discovered in rural Pennsylvania. Rural Pennsylvania, the same place that in the Man in the High Castle series, they've set this Nazi space-time portal. Uh, in Kecksburg, uh, local witnesses described an object that is almost exactly like the bell. I mean, you know, a, a upside down acorn looks like a bell shape. And about the same size. And about I... the same size, almost exactly, yeah, the same size. And how, how, what was that size? Uh, it's varied in description from 9 to 12 feet, mm -hmm. about 10, 10 feet or so yeah. in height, not very large. And uh, the curious thing about the descriptions at Kecksburg is that there was a ring of writing around the bottom, around the, you know, the, the lip of the acorn or the, you know, rim of the bell. Uh, there was a, a ring of writing that was described as similar to hieroglyphics, but not hieroglyphics. And uh, some of the witnesses of the bell uh, said that it also had a circle of runes inscribed around the bottom of it. You know, the SS was deeply into runic occultism. And so it's not surprising that they would have put something like this, some kind of incant incantation around the bottom mm -hmm. of the bell. Um, and this is what was described to Kecksburg. Uh, now, I mean, and of course, this object was carried away by the U.S. military on a flatbed and, truck. And if I recall, we're talking 1965? December 1965. So Long the after the uh, Nazis... Uh, two decades. Yeah. And you would think that if this program, uh, as Joseph Farrell and others have suggested, if this program, um, uh, Project Kronos, continued in, Ar in Argentina or wherever else, after two decades, it wouldn't still be a 10-foot-tall object. Right, uh, with exactly the same characteristics as it had in the prototype that they were working with in the 1940s. There would have been some development. Mm -hmm. So, some people have suggested that perhaps this object traveled in time, that, mm -hmm. you know, this was a late 19 or mid to late 1940s mm -hmm. bell that wound up in, in uh, rural Pennsylvania in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And as, as I recall, you mentioned that uh, plants that were in the vicinity of the bell when it was operated began to degenerate very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this thing, I mean, Nick Cook writes about it in the context of zero-point energy research because it was an anti-gravity device as well. Uh, they had to chain it down because it, when, it would, uh, when it would be activated, it would levitate and it would have a bluish glow around it. Mm. Um, and yes, it would have these degenerative effects on organisms yeah. and cause a distortion in the flow of time mm -hmm. for uh, human, human participants. Now, it's probably worth mentioning at this point some of the observations I have made and other people I know personally have made with Uri Geller. The Israeli psychic who has been known, uh, I personally witnessed, you put a bean sprout in his hand, and uh, as you watch and concentrate on it, the sprout will it will actually grow into a bean right in front of your eyes in a matter of maybe one minute. Yeah, and that highlights again the, the connection between psychic phenomena uh, and time travel, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, whatever... 
whatever the bell was doing uh, could be understood. Well, people may be trying to understand it in entirely materialistic terms and in and, and physics terms uh, as uh, you know, the, the opening of a, of a supermassive vortex through some kind of a transmutation of, of the uh, mercury-thorium compound that's inside the counter-rotating cylinders, that, that somehow this, this uh, compound, um, when it's properly uh, stressed and shocked, um, uh, opens up a, a vortex in space-time. But I wonder whether, you know, wh whether... This is an entirely physical process it, within the paradigm of, mm -hmm. of materialist physics that, yeah. you know, is established today. Yeah. Now, I want, since I brought up the Uri Geller story of the yeah. bean sprout, I should tell the sequel story. Uh, my friend, Saul Paul Sarag, uh, has been a good friend of mine for the last 40 years, uh, uh, was studying Uri Geller and knew about the bean sprout. Uh, demonstrations he'd done and wanted to uh, surprise him with a test of his own. So on uh, one occasion, uh, Geller was not expecting anything from him. He handed him a, a, a sprout, a bean sprout that had already sprouted, a mung bean sprout, and told him, make the movie run backwards. Geller held it in his hand for a moment, and when he opened his hand, it was no longer a bean sprout. It was a mung bean. Yes, and so, uh, you know, I have to wonder whether uh, achieving time travel uh, is ultimately going to require a fusion of certain parapsychological techniques mm -hmm. together with technology, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, th the bell had lethal effects on the humans in its environs. Mm -hmm. But if it's opening up a vortex in space-time, uh, then perhaps that would make it easier for somebody to uh, astral project into the past or the future yeah. through the vortex that's opened up. Because, you know, the, the uh, Germans, after all, were uh, pioneers in, in remote viewing and other types of psychic research. I mean, they were using what we now call remote viewing to track British naval vessels regularly across the Atlantic. And they also used the, the same techniques to pinpoint Mussolini and extract him when he was being held by the Allies and, and bring him back to uh, Germany. That operation that Otto Skorzeny carried out was all based on intelligence provided by clairvoyance. Uh, so and, and this is reported by scholars now who have looked into it? Yeah, Peter Lavenda talks about this at length in, in his book on um, uh, Nazi interest in the occult. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it appears that the Soviet uh, psychotronics program and, and American psychic research were both inspired by what was discovered when they went into uh, Germany. And, and realize the kind of research that the Nazis had been carrying. Well, I think it's only fair to point out, however, that accounts like this can even be found in the Bible. There's good reason to think that uh, throughout history there have been examples. Sure, sure. That, that's the case. Um, you know, one question that's also posed by, uh, you know, the extreme antiquity of some of these artifacts that, uh, that Cremo and Thompson discuss in Forbidden Archaeology is whether uh, I mean, if to some extent they're correct that there were exceedingly ancient human civilizations, mm -hmm. perhaps those civilizations were themselves seeded from out of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one thing that's always puzzled me is why the evidence for Atlantis is so isolated, is so geographically isolated. There are these uh, incredible, you know, astonishingly 
complex ruins, you know, extremely sophisticated architecture on a titanic scale, but they're found only in very small pockets. And uh, when Colin Wilson uh, co-authored with Rand Flemeth a book on Atlantis, uh, he suggested that um, the island continent Plato was describing in Timaeus and Critias was really Antarctica, that mm -hmm. Antarctica really fit the bill, and that it's only after an Earth crustal slippage took place that Antarctica wound, in, wound up entirely inside the southern polar region. Earlier, at least half of it was exposed um, in, in the latitude of Argentina, where Argentina is today. And so, uh, if an Antarctica was uh, Atlantis, You'd have to ask yourself why they limited themselves, at least for a long time, to that part of the world. Mm -hmm. And one explanation is that these were time travelers who were quarantining themselves to prevent contaminating the timeline. That, that uh, at least for some time, uh, they adhered to an ethic of, of not interfering in the normal evolution of human history. Mm -hmm. And their extremely advanced knowledge and technology uh, is explainable uh, on account of the fact that they were from the future. Um, this might also be an explanation for uh, the evidence from Martian civilization. You know, when Viking came back with photographs of, of pyramids and an apparent face on Mars, uh, and then when ultimately uh, John Brandenburg um, discovered uh, what he interprets to be uh, radiological evidence for a massive nuclear war on Mars dating to 250 million years ago, um, not incidentally the same epoch as some of those artifacts discussed in, in Forbidden Archaeology, uh, one has to wonder whether uh, Mars might have been a, a refuge for time travelers. I mean, if, if you knew that Mars was as uh, alive as Earth in the distant past, I mean, it's, it's now been confirmed that Mars once had a biosphere similar to that of the Earth, and you know, in, in hundreds of millions of years ago. And so, if a time-traveling civilization in the human future wanted to go somewhere in, in our solar system uh, that, that would be habitable, but that would allow them to isolate themselves from the timeline that led to human evolution on the Earth so that they didn't interfere with that, you know, in ways that were unpredictable, uh, Mars might be uh, mm -hmm. the perfect place to choose. Yeah. On the other hand, um, if a decision were made to no longer adhere uh, to that ethic and to to begin interfering in the timeline of evolution on Earth and to colonize the Earth, uh, you, you could see how um, that might be corrected by erasing the civilization on Mars, that such an extreme decision as the one that would have produced the kind of nuclear war that Brandenburg sees evidence for would be made potentially to preserve the evolutionary timeline on the Earth that eventually gave rise to Homo sapiens. Well, my understanding is that uh, Brandenburg uh, is simply reporting on a, a NASA finding that there's extraordinary radiation on Mars. Uh, it's hard to account for. It might have been the result of a massive uh, nuclear, thousands and thousands and thousands of nuclear uh, bombs exploding on Mars. Or I've, I've heard some people suggests maybe uh, one distant time our uh, our sun uh, was part of a double star system and that Mars was radiated from perhaps Jupiter uh, was at one time giving off radiation uh, at a massive level. Uh, so there are so many mysteries. Uh, I know one area that you've explored, Jason, 
is the question of uh, if it's possible to change the past. Many people say that uh, the best explanation for that would be the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, and you take issue with that. Uh, yeah, I do, because uh, I think that, uh, you know, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics doesn't allow us to change anything in the present. Um, if, uh, you know, all of our decisions are, are nothing more than probabilistic outcomes of events that take place on a quantum level in the quantum computer that, that is our brain, uh, and that every time a wave function collapses, it, it collapses in, in, uh, in any way that it could. Uh, in multiple universes, so so that you know, for each outcome of a uh, probability distribution on the quantum level, there's a universe in which it's resolved. Right? That mm. means that there, in, in in any given second, there are a number of parallel universes branching off from this one. Yeah. And there are worlds in which we make every decision that we possibly could have in this in this life. Vir virtually and, and uncountable new universes every nanosecond. Right. Yeah. So so that makes nonsense out of uh, you know um, uh, the kind of personal agency that is responsible for for choices. You know, for making choices and for uh, deciding to to make changes in the present in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it, it's nonsense to. Uh, on a logical level, on the level of logical coherence, to propose the many worlds interpretation as as an explanation for uh, you know uh, what's happening, where someone comes from the future and changes events in the past to prevent themselves from even having been born. With the idea being that well, they're simply from a parallel universe; they're not from the universe where they made the changes that resulted in in their mm -hmm. not having been born. It it doesn't make any sense because. There's not enough of a, a notion of agency present in the context of the many worlds interpretation of quantum theory. I think what makes a lot more sense is if we take the simulation hypothesis seriously, as Philip K. Dick did, um, and we think of alternate timelines as versions of a game that are stored on a cloud server. So, you know, it, video games today can be saved up to a certain point. Uh, and you can go back to that past state of play and replay the game forward in a different way mm -hmm. than, than you chose to initially. I, we should point out at this point in our discussion, we're starting to build on our previous conversation about virtual reality. So, uh, for viewers who haven't watched that video, video, if you really want to follow carefully where we're going now, uh, it would be very useful to watch it. And I'm going to link to it. Uh, there'll be a link in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. Uh, if you haven't watched it, I recommend it. Yes. And uh, so, I, I think that um, when, when you think about the uh, metaphysics that would be required to make sense out of going into the past and changing it, um, you you have to presuppose that there's something like a fifth dimension in relation to our four-dimensional space-time, and that that there are a variety of 4D uh, space-time continua that are accessible from a fifth dimension. And I, the, the only way to concretely conceive of that is, or at least one way that, that it's occurred to me to concretely conceive of that, is of different states of play in a simulation being s saved on a server inside the, the, the world 
uh, where the simulation is being programmed. Um, and we have a, a perfect analogy uh, to that in terms of the video games uh, and, you know, massively multiplayer uh, simulacra that exist today. Um, and, you know, this is not a, a totally hypothetical scenario either, going, going into the past and changing it, because, uh, you know, there are, there are a few cases where this was actually attempted, or at least it was, there are attempts made to change the course of events based on knowledge of the future. And one of them was related to me by, by Lynn Buchanan, who was a prominent trainer in the U.S. remote viewing program. Lynn and, Buchanan, who's been a guest on this program many times. And uh, he, he said that after 9-11, uh, he was tasked with seeing the next 9-11. And um, this, uh, he led a small group of people who foresaw an attack on uh, the southeastern coast of the United States. I think it was Georgia, although it might have been the Carolinas. Uh, an attack uh, uh, by terrorists coming in uh, from the Atlantic Ocean and um, hitting a populated coastal area with biological weapons. And he was able to determine the exact day and time that this uh, attack would take place so that when that day came around, the Coast Guard was sent out and did intercept these terrorists inbound to the coastal cities with this uh, pathogen that they were going to disperse and prevented the event from taking place. Well, the question that poses metaphysically is where did Lend get the information from in the first place? What world was that? I mean, what kind of, of reality, what kind, what ontological status does the world have that he got that information from, the world where the second 9-11 took place, uh, but that doesn't, in fact, come to pass because of, of uh, his intervention? Mm. And, and so again, I would suggest that, you know, the simulation hypothesis is a uh, reasonable way to make sense out mm -hmm. of this. And when you say that, I don't think you literally mean that there are uh, invisible computer programmers uh, controlling our 4D space, but more that somehow our universe operates as if that were the case. It may be. I mean, in another discussion, we, we've We've talked about the holographic universe theory, yeah. and, and that would lend itself to that interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think one, one thing that we haven't talked about is, you know, um, time travel into the future uh, by using uh, spacecraft that travel at near the speed of light. And uh, this is the kind of scenario that you see in the original Planet of the Apes. It's perfectly so, consistent with Einsteinian uh, relativity. It's the most unobjectionable and and conventionally accepted uh, version of time travel. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's a scenario that's in the original Planet of the Apes, where you know this uh, this early interstellar spacecraft. Um, malfunctions so that the people in hibernation don't wake up when they were supposed to. And uh, when they do wake up, uh, because they've been traveling at the speed of light away from the Earth, hundreds and hundreds of years have passed by on the Earth. And by the time they turn around and get back to our planet, um, it is a, a planet uh, governed by intelligent apes where human beings have regressed into savagery. Uh, and you know, interestingly, in the sequel to, to Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, it's revealed that there there is this breakaway human civilization that actually was mutated by the atomic war 
um, that, that, uh, that devastated, uh, humanity and, and gave rise to the civilization of intelligent apes. And this hidden, um, civilization of telepathic mutants, uh, is actually controlling the ape society mm -hmm. and manipulating it in various ways. Well, the only reason I mention that is because this idea of the bifurcation of humanity, this mm -hmm. bifurcated evolution of humanity, um, uh, in the future, is is also present in uh, H. G. Wells' famous uh, time machine yes. novel, and you know with the first uh, popular treatment of time travel in, mm -hmm. in science fiction. He also has this vision of a um, uh, differentiation of humanity into a sort of subhuman uh, Morlock species and a superhuman Eloy species. Yeah, one lives underground, one lives above ground, and if I recall correctly, the Morlocks feed on the Eloy. That's right. And uh, so, uh, the thing about uh, about time traveling into the future um, by by using uh, spacecraft traveling at near the speed of light that is uh, is um, worth worth considering. Uh, in terms of possible empirical evidence for time travel is that uh, I, I've never been able to understand uh, why the Mayans needed a long count calendar that operated with such huge cycles and how it was so precise. You know, the, the, the times were measured at, at uh, precision to so many decimal points as if, you know, modern computers were making the calculations behind this calendar. Well, you know, you would need that kind of calendar, this, this kind of, you know, uh, calendar where, uh, a, a single year is, is, is thousands of our years. You would need that type of long count calendar if you were a civilization routinely engaging in space flight near the speed of light. Mm -hmm. And every time you went out away from the earth and then came back, hundreds of years would have elapsed. That's the, the uh, kind of time scale you would have need, needed to think in terms of if you were, um, you know, uh, operating that type of space mm -hmm. program and, and effectively regularly engaging in time travel to the future. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, the Hindus also had a very large-scale uh, cosmology involving millions, hundreds of millions of years. They did, and so you have to wonder whether this is an inheritance from um, a civilization in the distant past that was seeded by people from the distant future. Mm -hmm. Well. I guess what we can say at this point is there's an awful lot of fictional accounts and explorations of time travel possibilities. We, we could probably easily name and enjoy reminiscing over another dozen movies and uh, Star Trek episodes and, and, and so on. Uh, and there are these scraps of evidence that we have that, that suggest uh, on an empirical basis that uh, Time travel or time portals of some sort uh, may very well be real. Uh, too bad we don't have an actual time machine in our studio here. I don't know that it's uh, it's too bad because see the thing is, uh, again, this is the most destructive technology imaginable. You know, the Germans classified Project Kronos as uh, Kriegsentscheidend, decisive for the war. It was a top secret level of classification that wasn't given to any other project in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder what they meant by that, Kriegsentscheidend, when they call something Project Time. Um, a time machine would be the ultimate weapon. I mean, you also see this in the Terminator saga. Yes. Uh, that effectively that is, that is what Fritz Lieber called the change war. It is a war to, uh, revise history. And you see this particularly in Terminator 2 when, you know, the first successful, uh, attempt is made to change 
the past. Mm. And then, you know, they over and over again, the two sides engage in attempts yep. to revise history. So uh, if, if this technology uh, is achievable, or if it has been achieved, mm-hmm. uh, it would be the, the most closely guarded secret because it would be the, the single technology that would be most destabilizing to society. Uh, if it was technological, I think it's fair to say if you dig into the accounts of uh, remote viewing uh, experiments in this er- area, it's quite clear that uh, remote viewers are able to view things in both the past and the future. That when Joe McMonagall refers to it as the ultimate time machine, it's not 100% accurate by any means. Even Joe McMonagall, one of the great all-time remote viewers, has predictions in that book that uh, haven't been borne out. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it, I, re- I view it like um, Babe Ruth, you know, the greatest baseball batter of all time, who struck out more often than than he uh, had home runs, but it, it was still a, a world-class home run champion. I think remote viewing operates kind of that way. So I think we have good data. I agree. And you say, well, if it's technological, but, you know, but actually this isn't, these are not mutually exclusive. Right. And I think one of the reasons why, uh, remote viewing and parapsychology research in general has been so severely marginalized is because of the at least subconscious fear that it could open the door to something like the change war. That the the effects would be so destabilizing to society if we were to rigorously understand uh, and be able to control these abilities. Mm -hmm. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, you are a, a very brave philosopher to venture into these areas and, and to do it with uh, such precision and uh, such articulation. It's, it's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. And if I may, let me just take a moment and talk to our viewers, because many of you know that Jason has been defamed and that it, he's lost his teaching career at the New Jersey Institute of Technology where his students and his philosophy of technology courses love the work that he does. We have set up a GoFundMe page for Jason. It's very important that he receives ongoing funding because he uh, is working very hard at uh, writing new books on these topics relating parapsychology and technology. You'll find links to the GoFundMe page uh, in the comments section after each of my videos with Jason. Jason, and I encourage you to check out those links and donate generously. And uh, Jason, once again, uh, my very heartfelt thank you to you for coming to Albuquerque and uh, being with me to share these conversations. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Jeffrey. Thank you for the opportunity, as always. And thank you for being with us. 